Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Kyriakos Mitsotakis, he is Greek prime minister, and far more importantly, has the most original path through childhood to the height of politics of anyone I know. My life was transformed in 1969 by the movie Z, except I watched the movie, the prime minister lived it. It was a tumultuous time for his Greece, and he and others of the modern age have brought great prosperity. Congratulations first to you and all within your politics and even the opposition in Greece to this most stunning recovery of Greece. What did you think at the low point of the Greek economic debacle? What were you thinking about to make Greece recover as it has? Well, Tom, we took over uh, in July 2019 with a very clear mandate to make the economy grow again. We were hit by the pandemic, but we still managed to implement uh, very significant reforms. Uh, and I think we used uh, the fiscal room that uh, uh, was available to us uh, to support the real economy. We're very encouraged by the recent data. The economy grew 16.2% in the second quarter yes. um, of this year. We revised our forecasts upward to 5.9%. And this may be a pessimistic um, uh, forecast for 2021. We see lots of uh, interest for foreign direct investment by American companies, European mm -hmm. companies. We're making big progress in digitizing the state. Uh, we have a very ambitious green transition plan. Mm -hmm. And overall, I think the mood in the, in the country after 10 years of crisis right. uh, has uh, significantly right. changed. I just I just want to point out to you the needle moved on a Greek GDP as everyone but John Farrow and I of the surveillance team have visited Greece <laughs> in the last six months. I just want to make uh, clear on that. Well, there's an additional reason for you to come and see what's really happening. People <clears throat> talk climate change. The American forest fires are time zones away. You have a fire recently 13 miles, 18 miles from Athens. You are living fires. You are living record of heat. What do you need from Europe? What do you need from world leaders to jumpstart the climate change debate? First of all, this is really happening. Uh, climate, uh, I'm not talking about climate change. I'm not talking about the real climate crisis. That and the is, energy, that, fold it right into that energy. Is, that, is, yes. that is hitting uh, especially uh, the Mediterranean very, very uh, hard. Now, we've put in place a very ambitious plan to decarbonize very quickly. And Europe is at the forefront uh, of this effort. As you know, we have a commitment to be climate neutral as a continent by 2050 and to reduce our greenhouse gases by 55% by 2030. What are we doing in Greece? First of all, we're shutting down all our coal-fired electricity plants. We said we would do it by 2028. I think it will be possible to do it by 2025. So we are significantly um, contributing towards decarbonizing by changing our energy mix. Obviously, we're adding uh, renewables. And in the interim, we are going to be dependent on natural gas. We're retrofitting our, uh, our buildings at a very rapid uh, pace. We are uh, putting in place a very ambitious plan to encourage people to purchase electric uh, vehicles. And all that is supported uh, by uh, European funds. Uh, as you know, we agreed last July um, uh, to what we call the Next Generation EU package. We're talking about 32 billion euros um, of grants and loans available to Greece 
for the next mm-hmm. um, uh, six years. Right. A significant amount of those uh, will be directed towards uh, green right. investment. A lot of this is incredibly important, Prime Minister. However, there's also this very pressing and imminent concern about rising gas prices uh, throughout the European region. What would you like to see some of your peers, some of your member states do with respect to countering some of the price pressures that seem to only be growing? Uh, well, first of all, uh, Lisa, we have um, uh, made a commitment to support uh, um, uh, electricity users uh, uh, in Greece, and uh, we're doing it by providing state funding, but also uh, encouraging our electricity producers uh, uh, to absorb a part of the cost increase. So we expect uh, that we will see no significant increase in electricity bills for the next three to six months. We have also uh, tabled a proposal at the European uh, uh, level uh, to find a European solution to what we consider uh, is a short-term phenomenon. But this is a real problem uh, for uh, for Europe, and I think it needs a European response that will go beyond what member states uh, are doing at their level. Prime Minister, as Tom was mentioning, I was one of the members supporting the Greek economy by going uh, to visit over the summer. It was fantastic. I also noticed that it closed down in terms of tourism and the open borders shortly thereafter as the number of cases increased. How much are you concerned about reviving a tourist industry uh, where stores were closed down? A lot of the infrastructure was seriously hampered by this prolonged period without tourists. Well, uh, first of all, Lisa, let me point out that we did support our tourism sector. and uh, we managed to protect jobs. Not only that, if you look at unemployment uh, numbers, uh, we're doing better this year than we did last year. We had a very good tourism uh, season, much better than we had anticipated. Uh, as you probably know, Greece was at the forefront uh, this January, uh, January of this year, in terms of introducing the digital EU certificate, which uh, made uh, travel much easier uh, in Europe during uh, the summer. Uh, and uh, we're quite encouraged by the performance of our tourism industry. I think we've managed... Uh, we're managing to move our product up market. So we had a higher spending per capita this year than we had last year, which is uh, our intention. And of course, we have a long-term plan to make sure that we grow our tourism industry in a sustainable manner. We have particularly sensitive ecosystems, as you know, uh, in Greece, especially our islands. We need to protect them. We need to make them green um, Mm -hmm. at a very, very fast pace. And at the end of the day, people who come to Greece uh, want a unique experience uh, and they do care about sustainable tourism. Uh, So I'm very encouraged by what we managed to achieve uh, uh, this summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I expect uh, uh, hopefully next year there won't be any any real COVID concerns. I expect 2022 to really be a bumper year uh, for Greek tourism. We welcome all of you on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. The Prime Minister of Greece, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, uh, is with us right now. I am the ugly American. I'm sorry to tell you this. My complete Greek knowledge comes from Maria Loy in her acclaimed restaurant on 58th Street. And Maria always circles back to the need to go live it, go be it, but also to the ancient tension with Turkey. Give us an update on how you and your government are dealing with the unique Turkish experiment, a devalu- not a devaluation, but nevertheless a much weaker Turkish lira today on interest rate policy. Give us an update on your relationship with Mr. Erdogan. Well, it hasn't always been uh, easy, uh, as you can imagine. We had a lot of tension uh, last year. Uh, things are better this year. I've always um, um, been very open and frank in terms of my relationship with Turkey. We have complicated issues, uh, very uh, difficult legal issues regarding the delimitation of our maritime zones. There is only one 
rulebook, and that is adherence to international law. We had similar problems with Italy. We had similar problems with Egypt. We signed the limitation agreements with both. I think we all made the necessary compromises. So we are indicating to Turkey that there is a way to resolve this uh, without uh, having to um, use uh, uh, very bellicose rhetoric or unnecessary tension uh, in the Aegean and the Eastern uh, Mediterranean. Uh, and of course, uh, we can also, and we need to work with Turkey, when it comes to, to migration. I think what Europe will not tolerate uh, is a repeat of what we saw in 2015, uh, uncontrolled migratory pressure. Is that a risk from Afghanistan? Uh, I think it's less of a risk uh, this, uh, this year than it was in 2015. I have committed and I've been very unapologetic that we will protect our uh, borders. We're doing it in a very humane manner. We're saving people at sea uh, every day. Um, we're granting um, uh, refugee um, uh, status to tens of thousands of people um, who make Greece their permanent home. At the same time, we send a very clear signal to everyone. We want to break down the smugglers' networks in the Aegean. We have successfully done so. Uh, if you look at the flows, uh, they are down by 90% compared to 2019. And we do want to work with Turkey uh, in addressing the, the migration issue and make sure that uh, these people are kept closer to Afghanistan and don't move uh, to Iran, mm -hmm. to Turkey, to, and then to Europe. Prime Minister, from your vantage point, do you think that President Biden is significantly different than President Trump when it comes to his actions with respect to the European Union, with respect to Afghanistan and Turkey, and how that all uh, does trickle down to you? Uh, well, there are certain, um, uh, you know, big policy issues where we're really looking to the U.S. Uh, uh, in terms of leadership. Uh, and, of course, climate change uh, is, is one of them. We will be meeting in Glasgow uh, in five weeks from now. Uh, and I think it's, it's probably time to move from the, you know, the nice uh, flowery rhetoric that you always hear uh, at the U.N. to very concrete actions. We, as Greece, we're a medium-sized country. We're trying um, uh, to do our part. And, of course, we will also be looking to engage with the U.S. to strengthen the transatlantic uh, alliance. At the same right. time, I have always been a very proponent, a strong proponent of the idea of Europe's uh, strategic autonomy, because there are issues, especially in our region, uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean, mm -hmm. uh, in the Middle East, in the, in the Sahel, where Europe needs a presence. And if Europe gets stronger militarily, if we cooperate more, uh, I think this is uh, to the benefit of the alliance and to the benefit of NATO. I say this with immense respect for your father and all of Greece of another time and place. You're the only one I can say this to. What's it like to be a refugee? <laughs> uh, it's... Uh you know, it is very difficult. And when we when we meet, uh, you know, the people, um, uh, especially uh, children, unaccompanied minors, uh, it's shocking when you hear their stories. And I can tell you... You were one of those kids. Well, we left, but not in the same situation. Sure, of course. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we had to flee the junta uh, in 1968. Uh, uh, and uh, we, we lived in Paris for... But there's no comparison between the stories that we that we hear and what we really did very successfully uh, tom was to address the issue of the unaccompanied minors uh, when we came into power it was a shocking reality you had these these kids as teenagers in the, in these camps um completely completely vulnerable we've addressed this issue there's not a single person uh, in a camp they're all um uh, in uh, uh, in places where they mm -hmm. can feel safe and where they can uh, thrive and i can tell you you know there are times when i see wow. uh, and, and this is a country that has traditionally been open um, uh, to uh, to refugees. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know something? There is a great success story. Just look at well, the NBA. Yanis Adetokounmpo, um, he's Greek. Uh, 
uh, from Nigeria. <laughs> uh, it's true. It's true. He is. He's. Okay. To- he's. He is totally. He is totally. He is totally Greek. Um, his. Uh, you know. He used to sell we CDs are, on the street. Mr. Prime Minister, and he's a, a great example of integration. Time, John, we've switched. He's. He's vamped here to the. To, to he just wanted to topic. fit in, Tom, that the best basketball player in the world right now is Greek. Now joining us, we are thrilled to bring you this week of the United Nations, Ian Bremmer of Eurasia Group. It's the United Nations world. It's also a G0 world. We're we're thrilled Dr. Bremmer could join us. Dr. Bremmer, the Greece modern experiment is a success. What does Greece do when there's another European crisis? How coalesced is Greece, as Europe, rather, right now? Uh, Well, much more so. Uh, You know, Tom, in an environment where the Americans and Chinese uh, aren't really talking to each other, the Europeans are taking the lead uh, on on climate regulations. Um, Their rules and regs on privacy, on data are the most advanced in the world and increasingly being taken up by other countries because they're out in front. That's not to say that their economies are all performing incredibly well, but you know the lessons taken from the near-death experience of Grexit mm-hmm. and from the disaster that was the Brexit negotiations and has uh, had a much bigger impact on the UK than the EU, I think has helped to bring the EU together. And the Europeans ended up responding to COVID in a much more coherent and cohesive way, both in terms of the vaccines as well as economic restructuring and rebuilding. All all of that means they're in better position these days. You speak of a misjudgment of President Biden in America, whether it's China or Europe. What is the prism that they look through now when they observe this president? Um, I, I think they recognize that even though they like Biden uh, much more, certainly the Europeans, with the exception of Viktor Orban, and he is the exception that proves the rule from Hungary, they all prefer Biden by a long mile. Um, And and yet um, they see that the United States now has two presidents in a row who are much more taken with domestic affairs than their interest in the continued strength of the transatlantic alliance. On top of that, there is an ongoing pivot towards Asia that the Europeans are generally not considered either very aligned for or much of a priority for. And so, I mean, frankly, even though Trump and Biden could not be more different as leaders, as individuals, the Europeans see more continuity and and they don't like it. Um, Doesn't mean that they have good alternatives at this point because absent the UK, absent Angela Merkel in short order, and you know, with the French president facing his own difficult elections in the next six months, it's not like the Europeans are replete with individual strong national leaders. Right. Uh, Kyriakos um, and Draghi are probably two of the few you'd point to right now. Ian, and when we look forward, particularly with respect to this alliance to deal with China, how much is the European Union getting left out of an alliance that increasingly looks like the United States, Australia, and the United Kingdom? Well, you know, the United States has the Quad. Uh, The United States has uh, this new AUKUS agreement, which has been described to me privately as five eyes plus. So intelligence sharing technology and some national security. Well, the fact is that when the United States looks at China, we see China principally as a government 
through a national security lens. With the sole exception of France, none of the Europeans do. They're much more transactional. And part of the dust up between the United States and France around all of this is that on the one hand, the French are the third largest military exporters in the world after the US and Russia. So they're competing with the US and they lost out on the Australians ripping up their contract. On the other, the French have been trying to convince the Europeans to have more focus on security, more focus on building up European defense capacity, and more of a proactive Indo-PAC strategy. Very few countries in Europe are interested in supporting that. So Macron is kind of neither fish nor fowl at this point. <laughs> Ian, Ooh. just to finish up here, we've been talking about Evergrande all morning and the systemic risk, not necessarily financially, but with respect to a housing market in China that is cooling dramatically. And, and frankly, the fact that policymakers are going to allow this. How does that dovetail into the rising tensions between the China and the Western world, if at all? Um, well, as I said, the United States has a president, two presidents now that have been much more focused on domestic policy, America first, and a U.S. foreign policy for the American middle class. The Chinese are focused much more inward as well. Let's remember that, you know, uh, Belt and Road investments have fallen off a cliff over the last five years. China's much more focused on their own dual circulation policy, <laughs> commit to the domestic economic consumer and supply chain. With Evergrande, I mean, of course, this is a really big financial crisis for the Chinese. And what was their announcement at the UN this week? We're not going to be building any more coal-fired plants outside of China. Yeah, because they're not going to be building much more anything outside of China going forward. That's the real shift. And when I talk to policymakers in Washington, they're still thinking about aggressive Cold War mentality with right. a China that is trying to take over the world. Increasingly, China's problems well, are domestic, too. I'm not going to miss words, Ian. I'd love to get you and Robert T. Kaplan out on the South China Sea here as we can in the coming uh, months That'd as well. Fun. Dr. Bremer, yeah. with Eurasia Group. This is a treat. After what we observed yesterday in the most different press conference, David Blanchflower joins at Dartmouth College, the former Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee member, and of course, definitive on America's past, present, and future wage curve. Danny Blanchflower, I want to talk to you about the new social Fed. They are oh so sensitive about labor. Can that be codified, or is that a one-off for the moment, the idea that Powell and the Fed can manage a new wage curve to better equality? We, we will see. I mean, it's, I'm thankful that they're actually really starting to try and understand the labor market, um, not least because between 2015 and 2018, they clearly didn't, and Powell had to do a mere culpa. It's pretty hard to understand exactly what's going on in the labor market now, not least because wage, wage growth just does not give you a good steer. So we're in an adjustment mode. I mean, I like to think of this, Tom, as you know, a, a hurricane hits an island and the price of plumbers rises for a while and roofers and carpenters. Then there will be an adjustment. So these economies are adjusting. I think the sense that I got out yesterday was that, that and looking at the dot plots, it, it was as if the... It was as if the, the members of the Fed um, really felt they knew what was coming. They have no history. We have no clue about how the virus and the, and the vaccine will go. And especially 
long-run changes in behavior. And these are all going to have very big impacts on living standards and on the labor market. We don't know what proportion of people have retired. We don't know how people right. are going to do in terms of their remote <clears throat> working. So I think it was a lot of wishful thinking there. I thought that, as you just said it pretty well, I thought the slight move to being rather more hawkish was not really based okay. on real evidence, especially if we talk about, about China today. We don't know how, right. how that's going to spread. So I think this is, a, this is a little bit of a world of, you know, we know more than we really do. I mean, let's talk Alan Blinder, David Blanchflower here, and I'm going to suggest both of you are less hawkish than many. What textbook, what Bible are the hawkish crew preaching from? Well, they're preaching from 1975. I mean, remember, I guess with you guys, I've probably... Um, over the last 10 years, spent an awful long time trying to talk to people about whether inflation was coming. Um, I, I don't really know what, what book they're reading from. This looks awfully temporary to me. It looks that, I mean, in the UK, we, in two successive months, we saw last month um, inflation um, fell from 2.5 to 2, and then this month it, it ro rose to 3.2, driven by all these base effects. And it looks awfully like when you look at the data, that in it, as far as I can see, within 18 months or so, the, the evidence is that inflation is going to be below the target as this stuff drops out. So I don't really know where they're reading from. Back to your original question, the assumption is suddenly that workers are going to be able to push for huge wage increases. But, but go back to my island analogy. Yeah, when the roofs come off, the, the, the people who repair roofs, their wages rise. But once the roofs have been repaired, their wages go back to what they were normally. So this is, a, this is a sort of disequilibrium shock. So I have no idea where they're reading from. Uh, it makes no sense to me. They said it for a whole 10-year period, and none of that ever happened. So I think they're just in a, in a dream world. Danny, I'm just looking at their inflation projections from the December 2020 yeah. meeting. They were looking at 22 at 2%, basically, at 23 at 2%, basically, likewise for 21 they missed this in a big way, Danny. And I'm looking at their projections well, no, for next I, year. No, I agree, but... but 2.3 I mean, next year, 2.2 in 23. John, go back to 2008. Go back, think about in July 08. Markets were thinking interest rates were going to be 5% for the next three years. The expectation was, you know, interest rates were, were going to remain where they were, and, the, and inflation was going to remain at 5.5%. So when you have a shock, a shock comes, yeah, there's a temporary rise in things, but... Inflation is nothing, nothing more than 12 monthly changes. You drop one, you add one, and then as time goes on, if you have a big shock, that thing drops out. So the crucial question is, are these temporary things, and, or do, and do they, secondly, do they permanently change your view about what's coming in 18 months? Policymakers like me, I always think, what's going to happen to inflation in 18 months? Is there anything here to yeah. tell me? that inflation in 18 months is going to be higher than two. And the answer is zero. So, Danny, you and I can argue about whether the forecasts are right or not. I'm not sure how much value it, there yes. is in that. Ultimately, I think it comes down to reaction function. They yes. told us they're an outcome-based Fed. Is there anything in their reaction function that you disagree with? Well, I mean, these are not normal times, John. So if, if you are seeing a steady and regular rise in inflation and you respond to that, I think that would be one thing. I think we have such such, such a, a complicated adjustment path that the sensible thing for a, for a Fed and for the Bank of England to do is sit and wait and watch um, and, and, deter, you know, and act then. But it's, I think the way you should do it is to say, under scenario one, we'll do this. 
and the scenario two will do this. How likely are each of the two scenarios? I don't really know. And I think that's really the way to go because we're not in normal times. Danny, are we talking about rate hikes here or also with tapering? I mean, do you think that it's a mistake for the Federal Reserve to start tapering their $120 billion of bond purchases in November? Well, based on the evidence, I think the answer is yes. I think they should be waiting and seeing. I mean, if they do it by a little bit, well, okay, the, sig the signal is there. The likelihood is that, you know, in six months' time, they might have to go in the other direction. I mean, the question is, are they prepared to reverse themselves? That's the question. Well, What's the evidence to say that you should do that? You've got this risk from China. We're looking today, and we're going to talk about the Bank of England. I mean, what we see, saw today is growth slowing. We've seen the PMIs coming out this morning in England, in, in the UK, in France, in Germany, in the euro area. Growth is not taking off. I mean, in the UK, we, we, we're seeing actions by fiscal authorities. They're cutting, they're cutting benefits to people. They're taking off uh, help to people who've been furloughed. Yeah. And, they're, and, and they're about to raise taxes. So remember that central banks have to compensate for what fiscal authorities are doing. So the Bank of England is sitting in a situation where fiscal policy is now tightening. So well, that's not irrelevant to their decision. So a lot of it, it <clears throat> depends on the fiscal authorities Danny. do. This, to me, though, there is not a lot of evidence that, frankly, the $120 billion of bond purchases is materially helping the labor market, is actually getting people higher wages. Do you see a clearer connection than other economists who've come on this show? Well, the story is, obviously, the question is, what's the counterfactual that you're comparing to? So people say, as you just said, oh, it's not clear that it's doing things. Well, it's pretty hard to measure that. We're in an adjustment path, which is which is continuing from a virus that hit the economy. It hit it fast and it hit it deep. And so, we're, so we've le we learned from 2008, if we look back, we did two little stimulus that forced things on the central bank. So I think the answer is you have to allow an economy to adjust. And so if you look at wages, wage growth, a good, good example again in the UK today, the National um, Office of National Statistics says wage growth is 7%. Well, I don't believe that. They come out this morning and, and there's estimates on what a wage settlements look like, and that's two. So what we're seeing is there's this issue of base effects, composition effects, and people coming out of furlough. We've never seen anything like this. The job of a central bank is to allow the economy to recover and try and get back to normal. All the errors are on the downside, and the errors that the Fed made in 2015 was to tighten too soon, the same error made by the ECB, and the Bank of England tightened too soon and then had to reverse itself. So as long as they're prepared to reverse themselves, then fine. But it looks to me like you should sit and wait and watch and, and allow the economy over the next six months or so to adjust and then see what happens. Danny, good to have you back. And good to have you back up at Dartmouth. Is it nice to teach in person as well? Does that feel good? Teaching in person is great. I just said to you, one of, my, one of the, the stories I always think is it's great to see all these smiling eyebrows again. You know, everyone's masked. We all got to vaccination, but it's great to be back with the students to see, you know, real life people and are, your are colleagues. You? So it's great. Do you do you still throw chalk at them when they're wrong, or is it like <laughs> vaccinated chalk? How's that work? We don't we don't do chalk anymore, Tom. You know, we've got these. We I actually zoom the class as well in case people can't go. No, I, I don't I don't throw chalk at it. It's, I'm too exhausted trying to speak for two hours with a mask. Only anyone exactly. who sounds remotely hawkish, Danny. I know how the Danny Blanche class works, Tom. They're yeah. educating the doves of the future. Oh, the man. central bank doves of I've the future. The honor. I like to think <laughs> is they're, they're educating people to be right. Is that right, right. Danny? That's how we do this. I, John, I've had the honor of lecturing with Professor Blanche Flower. They are sitting in the aisles for the words of Danny Blanche Flower. Very cool. Danny, thank you. Danny Blanche Flower there of Dartmouth.
The drama will be this weekend. It will be when the Arkansas Razorbacks move 88 miles from their big victory over Texas the other day down to College Station, Texas. Texas A&M Razorbacks, always a massive issue for 75,000 people assembled uh, in Arkansas. John, you are up to speed oh, on this. without a doubt, Not TK. watching Tots Arsenal. You're going to be watching Art Razorbacks because you watched him with Texas the other day. I watched Longcorn's Razorbacks a couple of weekends ago, Tom, and it was phenomenal to see that packed yeah. stadium. Phenomenal. And I'm happy to say the Republican Congressman French Hill of Arkansas joins us right now. Three Congressman, Razorbacks. you were there. Did you run onto the field at the end? I saw that little pitch invasion. <laughs> I did not. On my congressional salary, I didn't have the extra $100,000 to pay the fine. But it was a raucous, amazing victory over the Longhorns. And this weekend, they go to Dallas, to Jerry World at Dallas Cowboys Stadium to play the Texas Aggies. And so it'll be a two top 20 team uh, game, important game for both teams. I'm looking forward to it, sir. That's the sport taken care of. Let's get to the sport of this moment in this market. There's been a massive focus on a Chinese company called Evergrande this week, sir. It's been building up over the last couple of months, and there isn't much transparency in what happens with these Chinese companies. A lot of them come over to the United States, they list here. What I found really interesting is it's the Chinese authorities pulling back on their ability to list here, and it hasn't been the U.S. authorities that have got enough done. Congressman, why is that? Well, I think the Chinese are concerned about national security. They say every public company and every private company has an obligation to them, the CCP, the Chinese state, for intelligence coverage and for national security. So it's very difficult for them to ever agree to comply with PCAOB accounting auditing standards. So that's problem one. <clears throat> problem two is China wants to create their own parallel capital market. And so I think they're becoming ambivalent about listing in London and New York for some reason. I find that concerning. Thirdly, transparency. They're not transparent as a creditor in the country, the world's largest creditor in the world. They're not transparent about that. And they're not transparent with their statistics in China. And that's why I'm concerned about the systemic risk of bad economic data and company data out of China. Congressman Hill, you've got legit life experience in this with banking in Little Rock. And I want to translate this right over to New York City. The, the major banks that we speak to every day on Bloomberg surveillance, are they aware of this lack of transparency? And are they hindering your demand for more openness? Or do they aggressively agree with you that we need to see more Chinese transparency? I think they agree for more Chinese transparency. On the debt side, global debt side, China needs to be a member of the Paris Club. China <clears throat> needs to come out and come out cleanly on the lending terms and conditions they're putting on Congressman, I don't mean to, to I don't mean to interrupt, but this is so important, your thought here. Yeah. Would you suggest we demand that they become part of a Paris Club structure? I have demanded that. I've urged Janet Yellen to demand it. I asked the G7 to do that before they agreed to do the $650 billion issuance of special drawing rights. They didn't. I think that was a mistake by the G7 finance ministers. Talking about Janet Yellen, you're going to be speaking with her as well as Fed Chair Jay Powell next week in a series of testimonies where they discuss uh, their plans going forward. What do you think is going to be the hottest topic at a time when Fed Chair Jay Powell may not be up for renomination, according to some? Well, I think uh, their assessment of inflation and the impact of that thief on working families and how they can justify saying that it's transitory, looking at the statistics that we're seeing, 
looking at the plans of corporate America for employment and wages looking out into the next year. That's a key point I think they'll talk about. And secondly, for Janet Yellen, why there's been a failure by the Biden administration to properly get this eviction rental assistance money out across the country. It's a crisis in many, many markets, particularly up in the Northeast. Congressman, were you satisfied with uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell, whose tone actually indicated that he was concerned about some of the inflationary pressures that you mentioned? I'm glad. I think he's hearing from his regional bank presidents. I think he's looking at the data. I've been talking about this since last February, so I'm <clears> glad <throat> to see the chairman taking it seriously. The key has been for Jay Powell, is it transitory or not? Because he knows perniciously how bad it would be if it's not transitory. So I think that was a key part of their meeting yesterday. A Congressman, third issue and final issue, if we can get there, the debt ceiling debate. Let me ask a delicate question. Does this start to get a bit embarrassing for this country? Well, since 1917, we've had this debt ceiling. It always turns into this political football. But here's the bottom line now. Democrats control the presidency, the House and Senate. They've put forward these budget ideas, and so they ought to be able to put forward the plan for a continuing resolution and a debt ceiling proposal that can continue to allow bipartisan <clears throat> negotiations on spending for 2022. Congressman. Go on, Tom. No, this is so important, John. I, want to, I need a quick answer, Congressman. You're a bank guy. Are you trading bonds in your account? I mean, we've got this issue with the Fed of two presidents yep. trading in their account. Is French Hill on the phone moving ETFs around? Uh, no, Tom. My, my, uh, uh, I'd say my financial position's been pretty sound and the same way it's been for about seven years. So no material differences there. It's really just the way it was when I came into Congress and it's grown yeah. accordingly. But but I'm not active out there doing that. I think yeah. Jay Powell addressed that yesterday. And I think, look, people have to have a, a, a balance and a transparency. We have strict rules about that reporting in the U.S. Yeah. House of Representatives. And John, what's great is French Hill walked into Congress with 200,000 shares of Apple, so he's feeling great. He wasn't day trading them, Tom, <laughs> in the news conference yesterday, it seems. Congressman, thank you. Thank you very much, sir. The Republican congressman there, French Hill of Arkansas. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.